The following show is intended for mature audiences. Viewer discretion is advised. Welcome to season two, episode three of Coffee with the Johns. We are live. Good morning. Oh, you see, there it is. Yeah, we're doing good. Finally got the sound. Is LJ? Can you hear us now? Yes. So I think the mic is on. I think everything's on. We're connected. So. Sounds good. Sound is good. Oh, man. All right, let's not jinx it, right? No, no, not going to We're good not to go. We're good table. to go. So we got a lot to cover. One of the biggest things uh, that we, we're going to be talking a lot about real estate. There's a lot of, like always, there's a lot of things going on that's affecting the real estate market, and you need to be ready. Um, one of the things that we've spoken on the last podcast about is if if well you need to unmute your computer there sir um if you're going to be investing in real estate with how many investors we have right now in the market and how fast things are changing in the market if you are not paying attention or watching coffee with the johns um you're going to be behind the ball right mm -hmm. because things are moving so quickly and strategies are moving so fast that if you're waiting to see what's happening and what's going to happen, it's already too late. Well, it's one thing that's difficult is uh, you look at what happened. Everyone, the economists are like, oh, the real estate market's going to crash. Real estate market's going to crash. We knew a lot of people that saw what happened in 2008 and 9 were like, oh, be ready for the crash, be ready for the crash. And then come out and out of COVID, and like it, the market absolutely took off. Yep. They're like, the majority of people got it wrong. And now it's real estate because it, and by the time you, if you're flipping, buying something, turning around and uh, flipping it, it can take you three, four, five, six months to get to that point to where, hey, it worked out for us because we bought a, a house like the day they've closed the country down. And that actually turned out to work pretty good for us over the long term once we went to sell well, it. And then but, also, what is it that we, we talk about a lot is understanding when it's luck and strategy, right? So with that property, we did get lucky. Well, I mean, it because is because the economy, the way things played out, you know, people wanted to get your space, suburbs, yeah. And it was a huge house. And, I think it was, it was like twenty six hundred square perfect. feet, and it was at a perfect price point. So you know, it worked out. But yeah. it, by all means, it wasn't that we were, you know, really smart. We just got lucky on that deal. And, and that's something like you that. just kind of got to hedge your bets. Like, what are the chances of it going down? What are the chances of it going up? And kind of risk assess your strategy there at that point, because like. Nobody really knew it was going to go up like it did. And if it would have gone down, we were kind of like, oh, crap, what are we going to do with this house? Yeah. Hopefully it rents well. Um, but it, it worked out. But it's no way to predict or project or kind of see where it's at. So you kind of got to hedge your bets, never get too over leveraged on one strategy like we were talking about last week, the uh, wholetailing. And it's like, if you own that, your only exit strategy is to wholetail something. What happens if you got th 20, 30 properties on their shutdown or something comes along, black swan event, and all that stuff goes away. And now you got 30 properties and all the debt borrowed against it. So you got to kind of well, be well, careful with that. You know that. what's funny about that? When, when I record an episode for an investor's journey, I always do some research on the topic. What are people saying and all that? Um, just to see what kind of information's out there. So I did an episode recently on why you should be hoteling versus wholesaling. And I started doing some research and people are talking about hoteling. Like you should, you know, it's just as, uh, as risk free as wholesaling and all of this. Yeah. And for those of you that don't know uh, what wholesaling is, 
you are essentially wholesaling on the MLS. But with the biggest, the biggest difference is that you actually have to buy the property. Yeah. You actually have to purchase you have to take title that of that property. Home. So that means that it's not like wholesaling where you are simply getting a contract and then a yeah, you're, you're contract. selling you're selling paper when you're wholesaling you're and, selling an actual you're, property you're not really putting risking any capital no, 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 nobody no. is in that point uh except for the buyers you're screwing over but like <laughs> nobody's risking any real capital at that point but you have on wholesaling you or your lenders need to put up that money to buy the home yeah so it the risk go up exponentially so Yes, you should hotel because it makes you more money right now. But at the same time, you need to go in there saying, okay, and if it doesn't sell for what I needed to sell to make my money back or to or make some profit, can I take this down and flip it? Can I take this down and keep it as a rental? What can I do with this property? It cannot be that your only exit strategy is to hotel it. Because at that point, you your risk just went way through the roof. Oh, for sure. Because, I mean, that money... Is owned and then tell something you got to realize like why is wholetailing working and it's like who is buying it if it's a property that has to be renovated and somebody's trying to flip it like there has to be somebody willing to flip that property so you got to understand like who it is that's buying it why they're buying it yeah. and what they're going to do with it to where like if it's like hey this person's going to landlord the property because they can't find anything that's a bit different like understand your like i guess buyer sentiment of like who's buying and why if it's just a bunch of people bidding over scraps to flip properties like that's a buyer pool that can very quickly disappear. Oh, for sure. So you got to keep in mind what it is that, and well, what it is and who it is to buy. Just like when we were wholesaling, we'd always say like, why is somebody buying this property? We want to learn. We want to know why. So same thing if you're wholesaling, talk to that other agent. So like, what is your client plan to do with it? It's none of my business, but I'd like to ask just to see who's buying properties as they get put on the market like this. Well, and it's going to give you better information as to what type of properties should you be marketing to? What type of negotiating should you be doing? Like, are you losing too many deals because you haven't pivoted the way you negotiate and you're maybe getting the properties under contract way too low and right now buyers are willing to pay more? You know, I mean, these are all things that if you're not paying attention to the market, to the buyers and and actually to your network and networking with people and finding out what's going on, um, you're never going to change. So I wanted to, before we move to the next article that kind of ties into all this, I wanted to say hello to... Andrea, Kim, LJ, Lorenzo, Molly, Ricky, let's go. Everybody's excited. Make sure you hit that like button on YouTube if you're enjoying this content. It helps us out tremendously. Only one person's hit like so far. Oh, no, guys. There was five before we started. Yeah, so remember wood climb. Exactly. LJ has a good point. We partnered with him on a deal, and we were going to flip it. And then when we went to put it on the market, everything was good. We had renovated it. And by all means, the comps supported it. But yet we got a shitty appraisal. We got an offer in. Oh, no, the comps went down. Like from when we bought it to when we like we just caught that perfect portion to where like we were saying like 205, probably wouldn't sell it 210, 215. But we got an appraisal back because at like the 190. One went out of market. And it was prior right. to six months. It, those comps had disappeared and all because, the stuff was right, smaller there, and there everything was selling less. Were, move-in ready selling for 200 so ours was going to be arv ready and we felt yeah 205 210 or something like that and then all of a sudden like the comps disappeared but now if you go back and look at it there's a whole bunch of other properties going on there to where houses that are like because we're looking at another one that neighborhood at like per feet 
and it's at like 190 and ours was like 1685 and appraised for 190 three months ago or no way more than that now but yeah. uh yeah lj saying we lost two of the highest comps but exactly it was during the lockdown but here's what happened again because we have multiple exit strategies we ended up saying you know what we are not going to sell for we were still going to be okay but that wasn't the purpose of why we bought the house and because of the data and we saw what the market was doing with covid we're like you know what let's just keep this house we're going to go ahead keep it as a rental and it turned out to be a pretty good bet right because i mean what it, we it was it happened in like april may time frame is right there before like the post covid boom happened it was right there in that low pivot portion of just like yep. we don't know where it's going to go it's like well we can rent it and we found some finance we got financing to hold it it's like is this hope for the best yep. and we got a good rental rate on it so we cash flowed still to where even if the prices went down we were still cash flowing a couple hundred bucks a month so so we just got a, a thumbs up from mr joey hey, hey. remembers there's yes. the sound effects i always have the sound effects i just forget to use them so hotel is only good if very little rehab needed to get the property lendable for retail buyer. So no, Brian, um, what we're seeing right now is because of such low inventory, we are actually seeing a lot of investors are willing to come in and pick up properties off the MLS. Investors are picking up houses that look like complete dog crap. Um, they're damn near teardowns and everything. If you go on the MLS, you're going to see that there are houses that we would buy That's obviously clips. not for those crazy prices but we will buy those um so the, you're seeing all types of properties and now what we're starting to see again because of the low inventory is we're seeing retail in that big house that we went to this week we're starting to see retail buyers come in and buy houses or fixer uppers knowing that they're like you know it's fine there's nothing out there i like the location i like the house we'll fix it up you know, we'll put in the money, the money, we'll do the work and all that, and we'll fix it up to what we like. Yeah. So you have retail buyers that are willing that they have cash because they're, re you know, refugees from the coast <sighs> and they're coming in with that kind of that, you know, California, New York well, money. And that's what I was, <clears throat> I was getting at to where like, who is it that's buying? It's like, there are people from out of state that, that look at Texas, look at San Antonio. Some of the statistics that we've thrown out these last couple of weeks of San Antonio being one of the few countries or major metros that actually had growing construction demand and construction jobs. So that's something those people, that's why people are buying on the MLS, even for flips is, is you have people that they're just so desperate to get into real estate and get into flipping, or they just want a property here because they believe in the long-term appreciation of something. 1031s, you have a lot of money, like you said, refugees from the coast moving here because you see a lot of that. And some of the articles we got here, if we want to get into some of the topics, Fine. um, uh show that so one of the things that i saw was very interesting uh there's not a whole lot to it but the nra files for bankruptcy and yeah, moves oh. to texas NRA files for bankruptcy sir you told me you were gonna start with you hall well I okay. okay nra files for bankruptcy NRA, <laughs> nra nra files for bankruptcy moves to texas and they they quote said the this is a quote from the ceo uh, Wayne Lapiri, the toxic political environment of New York, the plan to be the plan can be summed up quite simply. We are dumping New York and we are pursuing plans to reincorporate in the NRA in Texas. My first thought was like, why didn't you move the NRA a long time ago? Because New York is not the most gun friendly state in the union and Texas is very friendly. Like, why is why are they still in California or New York? 
Well, so here's my question for you. I don't understand this. The NRA is filing for bankruptcy. How and why? I mean, it's the NRA. This is what I don't understand. Like, how are they filing for bankruptcy? Aren't they supported like by everybody throughout the country? Like, why are they filing for bankruptcy? Is just just a way to maybe get out of the retail space I, or something, whatever, whatever brick and mortar spot they got in New York. Like, what's the purpose? Well, I think they're just—it's a nonprofit, but it's still a corporation that that kind of runs. I mean, nonprofit, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, but they're filing for bankruptcy because just reading some of the article, it's New York suing the NRA, NRA suing New York, counter lawsuit after lawsuit after lawsuit, racking up all kinds of legal fees and things associated with that. So if that those get too cumbersome, you. It, Filing for bankruptcy as a corporation is a is a tactic to restructure debt to get things moved around to be able to open back up under a new structure. So I think that's one thing why they're doing that is like all these lawsuits go away if you file for bankruptcy, is from what I understand. So hey, they're eliminating all this debt, all these probes into the, their business dealings and stuff like that. It's like we're done filing for bankruptcy and we're going to move. But the one thing New York did say in the article is that they're not going to allow the NRA to file for bankruptcy just to get out from underneath their oversight in New York or whoever it is that's suing them out of oh, New York. We have to a, move to. a fellow New Yorker, Mr. LJ, on the chat, and he's saying that Governor Moron, uh, I guess that's a, or maybe it's French, maybe it's like Governor Moron. 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 Yeah. Uh, <laughs> spent lots of money suing them over the years. So I guess maybe that's, you know, you file for bankruptcy. Yeah, well, that's what they say. The, of that yeah, the political environment there, they're just like, we're done with this. We're moving. Yeah. Um, the next thing they're moving on to is the 2020 migration trends of U-Haul ranks Ooh. 50 states by migration growth. This is sexy. It is. And well, it's also going back to like, I think our very, one of our very first episodes that the, the salesman of the year for U-Haul yeah. was uh, Gavin Newsom out of California. Oh. And this article pretty much proves it. Um, so really what it is, is... U-Haul puts out a article every year because obviously U-Haul being a moving company, they have a lot of data nationwide of where people are moving to and where their people are moving from. So what they track is one-way moving, saying somebody rented a U-Haul in Sacramento, California, and took it to Austin, Texas, and left it and did not return with anything else. So that's what they're tracking. So what they really are looking at is where are people moving to the most and where are people moving to the least? And the top five is no surprise is all kind of Southern Sunbelt states or tend to be lower tax or, states. Or what, what's number one? Tennessee is number one up from number 12. Uh, Texas is number two. Florida's. There's a, they, be careful what you be careful what you wish for. No, so, I gotta pick a new state, but yeah. Yeah, Tennessee is number one, Texas number two, Florida number three, Ohio number four, and Arizona number five. One thing that shocked me was Arizona is number five and it's up from twenty from last year. So you think about all the COVID stuff and people they're saying, Oh, people aren't leaving California. It's like, uh, the data shows it is because Arizona, right next to California, grew from twenty to five in one year, from nineteen to twenty twenty. That's a huge jump. Um, and one thing they said in the article, though, is a quote a lot is the people moving to Tennessee because it's always been, I think it was from 2016 to 2019, Texas had, was number one for those years and Florida was always number two. And then they kind of jumped back and forth between two and three. And now, uh, the Tennessee's up there, but the president of U-Haul of Nashville or of 
U-Haul in Tennessee is like I'm seeing a lot of people from California move to Tennessee because they're attracted to the lifestyle. The East and Central Tennessee are enjoying the biggest gains in U-Haul arrivals. The top growth cities include Knoxville, the Tri-Cities, Cookville, Clarksville, Cleveland, Murfreesboro, and Maryville were the top growing places where U-Haul people are moving to. And it's no surprise your bottom five states are all heavily taxed, heavily burdened states of Maryland, Massachusetts, New Jersey, Illinois, and California being number one. And I was reading the article in California and Illinois, like Texas and Florida are always fighting for the top two. Illinois and California are always fighting for the bottom two. Yeah. And I was like, no surprise. So that's why. What I was surprised is how further, how much further up New York was. I was actually, you know, and this is what I think with all this is that California and uh, please people, if you've been to or are from either one, correct me, but California is a nice place to live, right? Because weather, right? The weather is beautiful. Um, I hear that. I hear because I've never been, but you have nice beaches. You have a lot of options. So the weather, New York is not because of the weather, but the love people have for New York, I don't think they have for California. I think New Yorkers, real New Yorkers, have too much loyalty to New York, too much love for New York that it makes it hard, even if they're failing, because it's like, yes, I'm hurting, but it's still New York. You get what I'm saying? Like, yeah. I, and, and again, I, that's just my belief, like why you see people so eager and so quick to just leave California because they're just going to like, all right, what's well, another nice place to go? They're going to Florida. They're going to Texas, right? Because of weather and stuff like that. So it seems more like there isn't that pride of California. It's just, it's a nice place to live. But New York, I feel like there's that pride. Well, so there's a lot. Of, I think there's a lot of pride for California, but it's also the pride. They're like, oh, but I can't live there. That's too expensive. I, I don't want to live there because I know you look at like some people in um, like New York. I mean, as far as like pride, I mean, uh, LJ will love this one. The the Go Bills thing where that's the way they say hi. That's the way they say bye. That's the way they say how you doing, buddy. I mean, I guess it's Go Bills for everything. You drive yeah. down the road, you say that, then half the street says Go Bills back. It's like. Yeah, there's a lot of pride for uh, New Yorkers in certain areas. Yeah. It's uh, pretty entertaining, especially with the the Bills now um, playing them as the AFC Championship this weekend. And I was talking to uh, LJ about it, and he's like, the amount of people coming out of the woodworks of Bills people, he's like, I was at the grocery store, and I said, go Bills, oh God. He looked at me like I was weird. He's like, ah, poser. He's not from New York. Yeah. Because he would have known that that's just your 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 call sign. Well, Bills aren't from New York either. They're from Canada, but whatever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, so I think I, I wonder if it's that uh, we have Molly saying that it, it could be because uh, Californians are, are smarter than New Yorkers and know when to get out. So <laughs> that's actually that's a very funny and good, good point right there, Molly. Um, the, the wrap up that article, it's just one yeah. of those things that uh, people are leaving those states and you kind of look at where they are and it's like. I think the, if you look, I mean, just look at the last elections, the way those states voted, like the top five were, they've all voted Republican and the bottom five all voted Democrat. And it's kind of one of the things where they talk about people leaving these exodus of these states. And then you talk, you look at news articles from those places and they defend them all the time. Oh, New York. uh, No, people aren't leaving New York. There's a love for New York. There's a love for California. But you look at these statistics, it's like, um, 
with Texas and Florida being one and two for the past five years. And now you have Tennessee moving up there. It's like, this is just ramped it up to where it's one of those things that, uh, I think we read an article that California's on the verge of losing congressional seats because for the first time, I think it was an article last week that they actually had a net migration loss from one year to the next over a 20 year period. It only happened like two times in the past, like 50 years that that's happened. Like, no, it's been it's been kind of nuts. Uh, the next article that I saw here is um, the what is it? The, these are the five hottest and the three coldest market for home prices in 2021. So it kind of stays on point with what you were just reading uh, as far as, you know, it being these same markets, these same areas are are the ones that are leading. Yeah. And um, as you see here, you 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 got Austin, Texas, Phoenix, Nashville, Tampa and Denver. So Colorado, it wasn't in the top five, but it was number six. Yeah. And it had a huge bump up. Yeah. From, they, it was a big jump, too. Yeah. It had a huge jump because of the same thing. I mean, people are getting the hell out. And Colorado, we have a, a good friend of ours that lives there. And it's a beautiful place to live. Right. I, now. Oh. Sure. Um, <laughs> but it's a beautiful place to live. So that's what they're going. Again, it makes sense. Right. People from California look for beauty. So they go to Colorado and Tennessee. You know what I mean? Like, it just it makes more you, sense. You ever been to Eastern Colorado? Why would I go to Eastern Colorado? It's, it's flat. Nobody it's, talks about Eastern Colorado. Still Colorado. <laughs> it's flatter in Kansas. But yeah, but this was your article. So was there anything else good in here? Oh, I mean, it was just the, the that fact of um, Austin was ranked uh, the hottest last year as well. The median price of a home sold in Austin in December was up close to 25% as compared to December 2019. So 25% increase from one year to the next, which is just crazy to me. And that is the largest gain amongst the 50 largest metros that they track. And this is a quote from the senior economist, Jeff Tucker for Zillow. And Zillow's not a small real estate company as far as the amount of data that they have. They're not. No, not really. He goes, these Sunbelt destinations are migration magnets, thanks to relatively affordable, family-sized homes, booming economies, and sunny weather. Record low mortgage rates and the increased demand for living space, coupled with a surge of millennial buying their first homes, will keep the pressure on home prices there for the foreseeable future. Hmm. So that was just something that was very, not interesting, It just kind of further to the point that it's like, booming market here in texas or in florida or in tennessee like it's here like if you're trying to chase that it's like it's already happening it's been happening we've experienced it the last four five six years of prices just going up and up and up and up and now with the massive inventory shortages that we're experiencing here with the some of the uh market updates we're getting ready to put out next week that what was it the top six zip codes had less than one month of inventory I think it was what I sent that picture to you guys. Yeah, I don't think it was less than one month, but it was uh, right at there. I mean, the the biggest thing that I remember seeing was exactly what you showed on that picture was, and we posted it on our Facebook page, on an Investor's Journey Facebook page. So go check it out, the picture, but it's the top 10 zip codes. They were all over 200 grand, the, the medium price. And under two months of inventory. Yeah, that was like, the first time. Well, that was, well, that was the, oh, out of all like, was it 64 zip codes that I track? Yeah. Only seven of them had above three months of inventory. That's absolutely insane when you look yeah. at it from a supply and demand aspect. When your supply and demand is 
six months and yeah. we're at sub twos our top 10 several of them are under one which is crazy um this actually caveats pretty well into some of the articles that we're leading into it was also stated in this article um just to kind of keep in mind is like as prices rise affordability weakens and more and more potential buyers are sidelined the national home builders increased single family home starts by only 12 percent month to month in december according to the u.s census but they are still far behind in up, keeping up with demand they're also hampered by rising costs of labor labor costs and material which prevents them from putting up more affordable homes and uh, the three what, worst what article is this that's the same article the uh zillow one Oh. It's like it leads into some of the other topics that we're going to talk I about of like they're wanting to boost home buying capabilities, right. but it's like there's no inventory that's going to do this going to be terrible. Um, and the the three article three worst places to move they kind of they put a lot of uh into the article of why people are moving to these top three or top five, but then when they list the top three being New York, San Francisco, and Los Angeles, they mm -hmm. just kind of skipped right over that and didn't give any like justification why. I was like, yeah. Hmm, I wonder why you just skipped over that and didn't give any reasons why. But we all know the reasons why people are leaving New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles. A very dense, very locked down, very expensive, and people are leaving for more affordable well, and, places. And then also we have this next article where spike in lumber and land prices causes home builders' confidence to fall from epic high. So <clears throat> we we are seeing this too. I mean, what was it that... <laughs> Uh, plywood went up to uh went up two bucks again yesterday it's up to like 31 32 bucks didn't it go up four dollars uh dude it was like nine dollars a year ago no but didn't it go up four dollars like last week or something like that that one of our contractors called us and we're like whoa it's good that we're done framing yeah i mean it's kind of like one of those every week's kind of reoccurring thing where yeah. like plywood plywood's up another two dollars so a day what is it's it like, now? uh i checked yesterday at home depot and it was just shy of 31 bucks holy Shit. So from wow, from nine dollars to thirty one bucks in about a year. And I was like, that's not just that's why are we plywood. getting into new builds? Um <laughs> so on this one they talk about builder confidence in the market for single family homes fell three points in January to eighty-three. Um what's important is that two months ago the index hit a high of ninety. In January twenty nineteen, before the pandemic, it was at seventy-five. So before the pandemic, it was at 75. Anything over 50, they consider it to be positive. So it went all the way up to 90. Now it's back down to 83 because of this. And one of the guys, um, I don't know who he was, but a shortage of buildable lots is making it difficult to meet strong demand and rising material prices as are far outpacing increases in home prices which in turn is harming the housing affordability. And that is something that we are seeing that it's causing builders in a sense to kind of get very strategic with the way they're building. Right. So right now we are looking at something to do with some, uh, with a lot because lots are being sold kind of expensive. It kind of expensive. Oh, they are. Well, on, that's what I said. Land, yeah, yeah. Land, so, lumber, and labor is our main inputs to a house. Right. And when those things drastically start increasing, it's like, even though interest rates fell through the floor, well, there's no inventory. So appreciation is being hampered by the fact that there's no velocity or turnover of homes where you have these two fighting forces to where, yeah, home prices shot up. So they say, oh, you developers are making so much money. It's like, well, you don't look at how much lumber and labor has gone up and land has gone up with those it's almost well, then, step and not, step not even, more. so you have that and then you have the, the bs of dealing with the city 
right? With all the regulations and, and not even regulations, just the bureaucracy of things of how long it takes to get an answer from somebody or the runaround. So as investors, you know, we're not sitting on a hundred million dollars, you know, with no charge at all. And the money's just sitting there and we can just dilly dally how they say <laughs> as long as we want while they're trying to figure out, you know, how to tie their shoes. Like it's difficult. It's something that we need to move fast. And every time we go to talk to the city or we have something you talk about, Oh, here, wait a week, wait two weeks, wait three weeks. It takes this long. It takes that long. Wait a week for us to tell you to wait another two weeks. Yeah. And it's like all these delays, all this bureaucracy, all these things that they don't, they don't even have a clear understanding of what it is that they even want for us to build. It makes it very difficult to do it. Oh. And then that, who, what is that? Who did that cost get passed down to? The end consumer, for sure. And that's just something that I, I talk about or some of these articles that I've been reading about, like Biden's been coming out and he's been campaigning on saying like, hey, I want to increase home ownership. And he's like, by giving this, um, I think I had an, <clears throat> so it's a, Biden looks to give a big boost to home, home buyers and builders. So I was like, I, that's what I'm curious about. It's like, how are you going to give a boost to builders? Because we are really hamstrung by regulations and labor costs, material, everything. And a lot of it, why lumber has gone so high is because I was reading an article on uh, somebody's website or I tried explaining why it's like, and it's supply chains. It's the tariffs that we have coming from, uh, had coming from Canada was at 20% and they dropped it down to nine trying to help with this and supply chains from overseas for uh, Southern, I think it was like Southern white or yellow pine is what most of the stuff's made out of. Mm. And there's just such a supply chain hamper and they're talking to their suppliers they're talking to their manufacturers and they, the, them being shut down for so long. And then this boom of demand coming out the backside, they have yet to be able to get up to capacity before the pandemic. And now you have this massive drain on the need for it. So he said, don't expect it to go away anytime soon like it's going to take a while for prices to come back down and the reason prices are going up is because they're having to go to other places and other manufacturers pay truckers more pay higher fuel prices paying having to get different ships that run overtime to run this stuff and those costs just kind of trickle all the way down so this article was <clears throat> the things that the biden administration plans to do so to boost home ownership which to me scares us is, is or me is because we don't have supply to even fuel what is there. And now you're saying you're going to give another juice to homeowners. Um, they're giving a 15,000 first time home buyer tax credit. And a first time home buyer is classified as somebody that has not bought or owned a home in three years. Right. So like I've owned a house, but now I've rented again for three years. So now I can be qualified as a first time home buyer. That, that was again. news to me. That was news to me. I didn't know that, you know, uh, your new home buyer status resets after a certain amount Yeah. Of time. And then it's saying like, it's, even though it's a tax credit, it's also something that can go towards like down payments. So they're trying to figure out how to get cash. These people up front versus, Hey, buy a house. And when you do your taxes next time, we give you a credit back. So <clears throat> that's something that, uh, so here's what I find interesting with this. And I want to get your thoughts. They are given more incentives or not even incentives because these aren't incentives, but they're given money basically to people that can't afford to buy their house. Barely afford. Right. You can so afford to it's buy it. Like it's just you, you, you can barely afford to buy it. So here, let, let us give you money so you can afford to buy it. To me, we keep going back to financial 
literacy, financial responsibility of saying, you know, yeah, I get it. You're giving me that boost and that's great, but still can't, I shouldn't be buying this, right? Because I really can't afford it. So what is this doing? Like, is this setting up that next trend of foreclosures whenever well, all this thing that's stops? Where, or that's is it where I kind of go with this. It's like, one, that's just going to make prices increase that much faster because the free market can move so much faster than government regulations. So they say, hey, $15,000 credit, you're going to add a massive supply of first-time home buyers that can now pay $15,000 more for housing, and it won't take long couple months maybe for housing to readjust to that boom and prices to increase that much more. So without the inventory to supply that demand, you're it's going to do no good. And they can do way more, I think, to encourage buyers to buy homes than encourage builders to build homes. So they, there are some other stuff they're talking about doing is... Well, w wouldn't that do the same thing though? If they're encouraging buyers to buy more homes, you know, we have that supply and demand issue. So then... Builders at that point could potentially make out okay if they just wait a bit and wait for those prices to catch up. Because, I mean, I, I look at it kind of like what they play with oil, right? With uh, the oil uh, OPEC and the oil market is that you have these companies that produce oil and they are saying, okay, hey, the prices of oil are going down too much. We'll hold back supply. Let the prices of oil go up so we can make money and then we'll release supply. Now, what do you think of these big companies, big companies, you know, your KB home builders, your Perry, all these bigger companies of doing the same thing of saying, all right, we have a housing inventory shortage, but it's also if we build as fast as we usually build and put it on the market, we actually won't make money right now. Right. Or yeah. we won't make that much. What if we just build to a point where the lumber and all that can be preserved and just leave it? You know what I mean? And keep the inventory low until prices keep going up where it makes sense. And now we'll finish off these houses and go dumping them in the market. You know what I mean? A little more strategic type of investing. I, I mean, I don't know. Cause you read every article and they're like, we are trying to build as fast as we can. We're trying to buy everything as fast as we can. Cause you just look at how long it takes from raw land turn into a development. You're talking years in the making to do all that stuff to do all the infrastructure do all the platting to do all the utilities oh into that. a development like yeah a, a full a, development yeah. like a neighborhood so okay. like the things that are coming on the market now they've probably owned this land like, for I your big not. we just bought your, some lots <laughs> for your big developers like they've owned this land for probably a year two years three years or more some of them like they buy stuff 10 years in advance big tracts of land to hold on to and waiting for the development to get to this area so they can, yes, I'm sure they can occur. And one of the things they want to do is encourage new construction of both single family and multifamily housing. Like, yes, but you need to deregulate something to get housing done faster. But that doesn't fit the agenda of we need to be green. Well, being green makes the houses more expensive, making us more regulations, more building codes, more oversight to make sure things are being done right. It slows the process down. And when you slow the process down, that Cost gets passed on straight to the end buyer, and then the market will adjust to labor material shortage and land or labor material and land is yeah. going to go up in step with those, and sometimes faster than what the prices are going up. So you have a huge dilemma of what things are well, going hit, to do. You hit on something that I wanted to talk about is right now with the Biden administration and with the um, the more the democratic um, control of the government. Eat the damn mic. Um, going green is a big 
play on the left, right? It's a big thing because of uh, global warming and all of these things that are going on. So going green is a huge play on that side. Do you think also for home builders and maybe even uh, rehabbers, there's going to be bigger incentives that might help <clears throat> increase their profits if they were to be more green conscience, you know what I mean? I don't know, maybe doing solar panels, maybe doing things along those lines. Like, do you think that makes more sense or moving forward? And then again, well, stop reading a freaking article and pay attention. <laughs> if, if right now you have Biden and you have the, everybody pushing more of the green agenda, like everything, which at some point they might put two and two together. If you want the economy to do it, if you want people to do it, you got to give an incentive for yeah. it. So they want to go green. Are they going to give more incentives to home builders for going green? I mean, I have no idea uh, what they're, I mean, they almost have to, but at some point it's like, how much incentive can you actually give? Cause there's a lot of things that play into home pricing and people's ability to buy and want to buy. So I think they can give tax credits, just like you have the solar tax credits that you can give, but some of that stuff actually doesn't make you or make you money. It costs you money to where like I've heard solar, I get all those calls all the time of, Hey, you get all these tax credits for going solar. But when you look at the cost of it, yeah. it's still not worth it. Like, yeah, you get a big boost up front. When you look at these things are only good for 20 years and all the maintenance costs that goes with it, it's not worth it. And everyone tries to sell you, Oh, but your house is worth more because it has solar panels. It's not appraisers. Do not take no. into account that you spent 40 grand putting solar panels on your house. Even if it is worth a little more, it's nowhere near the cost of it. So yeah. they have to give some kind of incentive and I can see them doing that, uh, expanding those credits. Just like the reason Tesla has made it as far as it has is because it was selling those green credits to other companies to generate revenue because all of it's green cars. Right. Um, well, but, and then I have, um, I, I wanted to cover this article on, uh, you know, mortgage refinance, demand spikes 20% as borrowers fear missing out on record low rates, right? So what are we seeing is that refinances are going up even more. What does that mean? Is that as refinance goes up more, that means that less people are selling their homes, which is putting even a bigger strain on the inventory. Well, that's what so, I, I was trying to I get across to people like we talked about last week about like, in order for a house to appreciate, houses have to sell. So if there's no inventory and no turnover of properties, if inventory gets too low, that will slow down appreciation for the fact that there's just not enough houses turning over and people selling and buying the houses for prices to even go up. Where yes, if you put a house on the market, you got six offers, or I mean, we've talked to some people, they had like 45 showings and like 15 offers in 48 hours. That's what's going to happen is like you go on the market, boom, it's gone. And it appreciation does go up. You get an extra three, five grand on the property. Well, if that doesn't happen continuously over and over and over very quickly, your prices aren't going to appreciate. So that's going to kind of slow down the appreciation, but it's going to price out your entry level home buyer because guy getting FHA financing needs 5,500 and closing concessions to even buy the house is going to be beat out by somebody putting 50 grand down a conventional loan. Yeah. Like they just can't compete. So your first time home buyer that qualifies for that $15,000 tax credit, it doesn't do anything because they're just going to get beat out by the crap, the, the cash buyer or the person actually putting real money down, not just borrowing everything and leverage themselves to the hill to buy that. Well, and, and also in this article they have, uh, you know, so it's up 20% from last week from the previous week. So just in a week, it was up 20%. 
Um, that was the highest level since March. Uh, volume was 93% higher than a year ago. 2.8% of 30-year uh, with a 20% down, uh, down payment. Up from eight uh, from two point eight six, so it's uh, at two point eight eight, up from two point eight six. Not a crazy bump there, but it, you know, interest rates are. You're talking of about the interest rate. Well, that was another yeah. thing that um, that previous article I was talking about with the Biden's plan for home building. One of the biggest concerns is as this is as the nation's economy recovers, the need for the Fed to be there buying up the mortgage-backed security supply is going to be lessened. And you take out the biggest buyer, that's going to put upward pressure on interest rates. Mm -hmm. Or you have already seen the 10-year treasury go from, I think it was 0.5 up to 1.1, which that they track that like very close correlation between those. Where recently they're like, the mortgage rates should be like in sub twos by historical splits. You know, what I find funny about all that is we, we, you and I study the economy you know, quite closely, we read a lot of books on the economy and stuff like that and the markets. And one thing that I find funny is they say, you know, oh, the 10 year treasury reflects the 30 year, you know, they move in sync until they don't. And they don't. And it's like, oh, my God, they're not moving in sync. There's a big crisis coming. We're all going to die. And then it goes back to normal. Nothing happens. And then, oh, but, you know, this, this treasury represents this thing in the mortgage, but, and then it goes off and then it comes back. It's like all of the, where I'm getting at is that all of the trends, all of the cycles that we have read about, that we've studied as far as it being, you know, um, market cycles for real estate, market cycles for the stock market and all this, it's like none of these things make any sense anymore. And none of these metrics matter anymore because the way everything is moving it's kind of like we're in uncharted waters and everything seems to keep going you know every because uh, i hear a lot of economists from uh more of a conservative point of view and they've been crying you know that this was gonna fall like eight years ago in four, yeah. eight years and every time they're like oh you're gonna see the way they're doing this and the fed and blah 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 this is gonna happen and then all of a sudden, it doesn't. And then, oh, yeah, but look what they did here, here. Now this is going to happen. Well, like nobody yeah, would have thought the Fed was going to step in and be the buyer. Like, well, nobody expected that, that to happen. It's like I'm there's saying, always some way to. There's nothing right now. We keep seeing more and more of nobody expected. Nobody expected. Nobody expected. But one of the things that I, I believe we can most likely expect, and disclaimer here, we don't give financial advice, legal advice, accounting advice medical advice. We're not dentists, psychologists. Not a vet. I'm not a vet. Um, <laughs> a veterinarian. I yes. don't give any advice to how to Yeah, do. veterinarian. Yes. And well, we're also not veterans either. That being said, the only thing I think has stayed consistent is that they are going to do whatever is necessary to keep this ball rolling. Yep. Whatever that looks like. And they're going to move the line. They're going to move the goalposts. They're going to move the metrics. They're going to change what they measure everything in. They're going to change, you know, what is being tracked, what's not being tracked, what matters, what doesn't matter. You know, oh, well, yeah, that used to matter, but it doesn't matter anymore. Or, yeah, well, this still matters, even though it shouldn't. You know what I mean? Like, they just keep changing shit. Yeah. 
So it's like my thing is like the only constant I guess you can have is that we've seen time and time again is that they are not willing to sacrifice, you know. Well, that's what we just talked about last week where it's like the Federal Reserve, like they came very close to just buying straight into the stock market to stabilize the, the markets there. Like Japan, the Bank of Japan is the biggest buyer in their stock market. Like they will go as far as they can, do whatever they can to keep things going until who knows what happens that the whole thing just, it had to be like a system wide collapse of everything to get right. them to not try everything. And even then they're still going to try. They're not going to go out just like, Oh, throw our hands up and forget it. Give up. That's not going to happen. Well, And then to continue with this article, we had, um, it says the expectation of additional fiscal stimulus from the incoming administration and the rollout of vaccines, improving the outlook drove treasury yields and rates higher. So, we have low inventory, right? We're this is continuing to add to more low inventory because people are not looking to sell. They're saying interest rates are could be going higher. I and again, this is a personal opinion. I don't believe that they can. I mean, even before COVID, they kept trying to raise interest rates, and every time they did, market tanked. Like they, even when the economy was supposedly good, they couldn't raise interest rates. You know, and now it's like we're even worse off. Than but that's we were what I'm saying. Then. They're not and raising interest rates. They're keeping interest rates low. It's the because the treasury only buys like those short term treasury. That's the rates that they're talking about. They're, they can't raise those. Yeah. Or like the market will determine because I mean the ten year treasury has already risen. It's risen in from 0.5 to 1.1. So that isn't the Fed trying. Like that's what's happening. Like after they quit buying these things, like markets will naturally start to try to rise and normalize themselves because somebody has individual investor has to be one buying those things or selling those to where those are the market forces that uh, drive like car rates, loan rates, credit cards, and things like uh, that. I, I disagree. I think they are more driven by at this point by the fed and the government, they are the biggest buyers of most of these things. And I think that they, they want to put some confidence as because I've seen I don't have the articles here, but I have seen articles of the Fed saying, you know, the Fed and um, Fannie and Freddie talking about mortgage rates are going to start rising because of a more positive outlook on the economy. So for viewers and everybody curious about interest rates, I don't think they can rise much because, yes, we have a lot of buyer demand, but. What I see from the government is like they they make the housing market the linchpin of the economy, kind of. You know what I mean? Like if the housing market is doing good, then the economy is doing good. And they got to keep propping the housing market, which is why all these incentives, all these things for more people to keep buying. So I don't think interest if interest rates start rising, you're going to start scaring people out of the market because they're going to be like, oh, OK, now it's getting a little more expensive. You're going to make home prices go down a little bit. Or well, but you have the caveat off. to that is if you keep them low, people get priced out because prices rise too high. Right. So it's the exact same no, thing. No, no. So it, it's a very fine line balance that you have to do to where if you increase demand, then prices go up. Well, that demand, that extra incentive did nothing because now it's been priced into the markets. The thing is, is like, how do you go back from that? Once you give that incentive and the prices adjust to it, it's like you, it's very hard to go backwards because right. now everyone's leveraged up on buying those things. And like you said, the foreclosure crisis happened again. It's all these people that shouldn't be buying, buying. And now that are paycheck to paycheck, where if the economy does falter and start regressing, how do these people get out 
from underneath those mortgages. So where I'm more going at is instead of trying to guess at when interest rates are going to fall, if they're going to fall, if they're going to go up, if they're going to go down, make sure that you're buying because it makes sense to buy yeah. and you can afford it and it's good price and it's a good area, whatever it is, but make sure you're buying because it makes sense at the moment, not because of what may or may not happen in the future, because where I'm going at with all of this, you know, these cycles and all these things is that nobody knows. You know what I mean? Like we are literally, in my opinion, in uncharted waters. I don't think, you know, any anybody can predict with any certainty what's coming in the next three oh. months because oh, I mean, they just keep changing everything. So to me, it's like, look, if you're going to buy a house, buy a house because it makes sense. Don't buy a house because you feel that interest rates are going to go higher. Or because if you are buying it for that reason and you still can't afford the house or it's a taste squeeze or something, it doesn't matter what the hell interest rates are. You're putting yourself in a bad situation. You understand? So don't do the investments or the purchases based on what could or may or may not happen, yeah. what the Fed said or didn't say because they change their mind almost every other week. So it's like, don't do it that way because I think you're setting yourself up for very big failure in a very big shot. I mean, it's like it can go up, it can go down. It doesn't matter. Exactly. Um, that's one thing, uh, an article I put in here, like what's the stock and bond market going to look like from here? Um, and they kind of talk about like, hey, this is where, this is what the Biden administration is inheriting uh, and what they think. Because I mean, people, like the stock market isn't the economy, but it is something that does tie into the economy and what people consumer confidence feels like how wealthy they feel because they look at their 401ks they look at these things that you have that wealth effect that comes from it so just some numbers of where biden is taking over because we talk about like how are these corporations profits falling through the floor but their stock valuations are going up at such drastic uh to drastic numbers and um just some numbers from Trump term, uh, the S&P grew at an annualized rate of 13.73% or 67.26%. That's the third biggest annualized gain under a president. The NASDAQ composite, meanwhile, posted a 24.17 annualized return over four years. So that's every year. That's not just total over four years. No, every year annualized return of 24% increase. And that's the largest number under a president since the exchange debuted in 1971. But now, how can those things continue with already being at massive valuations over what historical numbers are? And then some of the stuff that Biden has said, campaigned on, that they're, they're going to raise taxes some way, shape, or form, taking the corporate tax from 21 to 28, considering hiking the capital gains and dividends from 24 to 43%. That's taking money out of the market and disincentivizing people to invest. From 24% up to 43% on capital gains. Also raising income tax for the highest earners because those are the people that own the majority of the stuff because like if you have high income, you invest in something and a lot of that money is going to be tied to the stock market. So it's one of those things of like, how can these things continue? How, what is buyer sentiment going to be if you're already at massive valuations from one term or from one point in time, doesn't matter the, um, presidency or who's in the office it's like it can't continue to grow like this right. but we've been saying forever it can't continue to grow like this for the past six months but it has but it's also one of the things that um you look at the dot-com bubble 
of what happened there is like it grew for several years before it popped. And when it did pop, it took two, three years for it to come back down to levels before people still felt safe investing again. So where are things going to go from here with the rising interest rates of like the 10 year treasury that we talked about? And um, I think it was the Goldman Sachs forecast the GDP will grow at a 5% annualized rate in the first quarter of 2021 and a 5.8% increase over that. So yes, the GDP is coming back, but you're already starting at such a high place. Can those things continue? And prices continue to rise. Is that going to continue to be there? And how much, I mean, we'll see how much power the government has to incentivize people to keep this going and well, keep it from falling again. What do we see is that the S&P 500 is really the S&P, the S&P 6 or 5. What is it? What do you have? Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Tesla, um, Google, Alphabet, Google, Intel, Microsoft. Uh, Microsoft, not Intel. Um, so you have pretty much, those are like, I believe I was reading, those are 40% of the S&P. Yeah, because we said right? those were all NASDAQ traded companies and it posted a 24% annualized return. Exactly. Well, those companies are still in that 13.7% return for the S&P. And they're the biggest drivers of that stuff to where like, that's why these, what was it? A year ago, uh, Amazon or wh who was it? Apple or Amazon that first hit the trillion dollar mark. Was it Apple? Yeah, but it was like Apple hit it, and then shortly after Amazon hit it, and now they're at like $2 trillion. Now there's like $6 trillion companies, or $6 trillion, $6 trillion, how do I say that? There are six companies that are valued at a trillion dollars, or whatever it may be now. Right. So we're like, it just barely hit it one time, it regressed, and then now, boom, everybody's a trillion dollar company for those big companies like that. So like, how well, much these valuations we, things we have grown to, for those companies? We go back to what we always talk about is when these companies become as big as they are, they can't fail, right? When six companies are 40% of the S&P 500, you cannot allow those companies to fail. Power that comes with them, especially the spotlight tech has gotten recently as yeah. far as censorship and using their power and size to... We don't, we don't say that word here. Okay, censorship. Nobody's censoring. We love you guys. <laughs> but um i wanted to talk about this next article that it, it kind of tying into that how bitcoin tumbled to thirty thousand. so it went from 40 grand yeah 40 uh, 40 000 down to thirty thousand, right in less than a week yeah and <laughs> i follow this economist uh you do too what's his name damn uh the george rebel gammon? capitalist george gammon george gammon I was watching one of his podcasts and he had on there a video of this couple, young couple, teaching on TikTok how it is that they work from home and they're able to sustain their lifestyle. And I wanted to find the video and I completely forgot. But the video is hilarious because he says, you know, it's simple. I just opened up, a, a, you know, my Robinhood app. You can create accounts free and they even give you a stock. So, I mean, they're paying you to be on there. And then, you know, you put some money in. And you wait for a stock to go up, and when it's going up, you buy it. And then when it stops going up, you sell it. And then you just, you make money. I'm like, wow. And that view, that Woo! video probably has like 6 million views of like a bunch of 14, 15, but 20 year olds, 20 somethings. If you go on TikTok, and I, I, I'm, I'm sure you've seen it too, the amount of young kids, I'm talking about 15 years old, you know, 
talking about how to make money in the stock market and all of this is insane. To me, those are signs that, all right, something's wrong here. It's that old <laughs> adage, like when your guy at McDonald's starts telling you, trying to sell you houses, you know, you got to like, this yeah. might be getting wrong. It's like everybody or like the, what was it? The, the pot stocks uh, a couple of years mm -hmm. ago when everyone's like, when everyone all of a sudden's like, oh, you got to buy a marijuana stocks, marijuana stocks. Like when, so why are you buying it? Oh, it's been going up. That's your only justification. Yeah. And you don't understand anything about economics and corporate governance and how money actually works. That's when you know you got a problem. Well, it's like, you, have, okay. uh, you also have the rapper, Mr. Jay-Z, one of the richest uh, rappers in the world. He just created a $10 million fund too. I, I was reading that this morning for weed companies or pot or whatever the legal term is. Uh, marijuana. Marijuana for... <laughs> uh for you know weed companies and all that so i mean you're starting to see a lot of people get into that because they look at what it is we have uh and i don't want to is it liberal is not offensive right a, a liberal government yeah policies um, yeah huh liberal policies liberal governance uh, right liberal and, and they support legalize of drugs of weed and stuff like that so jay-z I believe he's a billionaire or worth at least a billion dollar thereabouts. Close to it. He's yeah. not an idiot. Yeah. So he he's looking at this. Biden got elected, full democratic government. He's like, yeah. I'm well, it's also one of the things I, I look at this too. It's like, oh, uh, they need to generate tax revenue. Yeah. But where do they generate tax revenue? They could legalize marijuana because I know Colorado, like they've taxed the hell out of it, and they make a ton of money by taxing marijuana stocks. So like, you need additional revenue. Create a new product, delegalize or decriminalize something, allow something to come on the market and put 20% tax rates on the thing. Yeah. Well, that's a way to, because I mean, marijuana is here. People, you can, it's not hard to find to go on the streets and find somebody to find it. That's all coming here illegally, meaning the government can't tax it. Yeah. So how else do you get that tax revenue? Decriminalize it, make it legal and have the shops open up and tax it. And don't get me wrong. I always said like, I'm for legalizing drugs and everything, because at the end of the day, it's up to you whether you want to destroy your life or not you know what i mean like if you want to take and i'm talking about like abuse of drugs right i'm not saying that smoke a little weed it's gonna kill you i mean i don't i don't do it but uh you know i'm not saying do you um <laughs> but going back to this article with uh bitcoin the latest plunge which comes without any clear reason this is what i keep going back to underscores the volatility of a currency that's become a popular investment for day traders in recent years, even as it still has limited real-world application. Bitcoin rose over 300% in 2020, closing the year right about where it sits currently. So you, And then what I found interesting is that Joe Biden is picked Gary Gensler, who had taught at MIB um, MIT. about... Huh? MIT. MIT. Big what did I say? MIB. Uh, Not in the black. men in black. Not the, the men, men in black. In black. Ah, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Big Willie. Let's get that right. But yeah, so he taught eh, potato, potato. <laughs> <laughs> so he taught at MIT cryptocurrencies. And he picked this guy, Gary, to be the chair of the Securities and Exchange Commission. So my thing is more on like, you think that this is going to be something that Biden is leading more towards and seeing like, hey, how can we get into this cryptocurrency? How can we maybe create a cryptocurrency that's part of the government? Like, 
do you think it's going more that way or they're trying to regulate it where it's like trying to kind of tax it, make it illegal to own? I don't know. Man, I really, that's a, I don't know. Cause you can make probably strong cases to both sides just from our points of like, I have no idea who this dude is, but knowing that he is somebody that is educated in cryptocurrency to put into the sec is something that I, I don't know because like i put some articles in here that blackstones or blackrock has joined the bitcoin business where it's becoming more and more tied into the economy and the longer it goes unregulated the more damage that is going to be caused the economy when they do try to step in and regulate it so i think it's something they're keeping an eye on and they're allowing it to happen because you can tax that where hey it goes from ten thousand to thirty thousand and now what is it? The um, capital gains rates doubles. Yeah. It's like that's tax revenue. Yep. So people are allowed to day trade that and government can tax that. So I think they're trying to regulate it in the sense that they want the tax revenue, but they want to make sure they're getting their tax revenue mm -hmm. because it's something that is hard to track because they're, it's a distributed ledger and you don't know who's making money where, where it, you can find these applications that are third party, get money into them and trade in them and get the money out without any way for them to track that it was you that made that money. So I think that might be the direction they're going is how do we regulate and watch this to see how we can generate revenue from it. Do you invest in Bitcoin? I have some. You have some? What are your thoughts on it personally? I look at it as I educated in it. Not in the least bit, but it's one of the things it's kind of the same reason you buy like gold or silver of just like, it's just a hedge against the future, small bit chip on the table that, Hey, if it goes from 10,000 to 200,000, it's like, Hey, I had some minute to ride that wave. So um, my, my point to that is you have Biden picking this guy to be the head of the sec, the chair of the sec. Um, and then you have what we've, been led to believe as unlimited stimulus as much as the country needs. Yeah. So they're going to keep printing more money, right? Dumping more money into the hands of people. And the majority of people, a lot of people don't actually need the money. So my thing is like all these people are seeing, you know, w w the only reason why Bitcoin even went to 40 grand, like there's no fundamental about it. It's just yeah. pure speculation. The same with Tesla. Per perceived value. Exactly. So they're, you know, the same like that guy gave that very sage advice of, you know, when you see stock going up, just buy it. And when it stops going up, sell it. Right. So you have that kind of mentality. Why wouldn't Bitcoin Tesla just keep going up then? You know what I mean? Because you just, you keep giving people more and more money. You know, and they don't need it. They're gonna, they're well, gonna it, incenti like, it incentivizes wow. risk play where it's like, I don't need yeah. the 600 bucks. I don't need the $2,000. What do I do with it? It's like, well, I mean, psh, let's put a chip on the table and bet on something where that's what drove the market from the high, from the depths of March all the way up to where it's at now. Or that quick turnaround is people jumped in and buying. And when people saw it going up, more people jumped in, more people jumped in. But I keep going back to like 2000 or 1999, 98, 97, like, why wouldn't you invest in an internet company? The value, the stock market, the values of it just keep going up and up and up. So I have this money. Let's just keep putting it in there. And eventually it, it has, it has to regulate and, and change at some point to where the fundamentals of it, it can't be, why are you buying the stock? Because it's just, it always goes up. Well, it always goes up until it doesn't. And yeah. then it can crash all the way back down. And, but it's also like, what are these assets? 
It's just whatever somebody believes they're to be worth to where if prices start going down, they could say, ah, this thing's not worth it. I can't take this financial pain anymore. I'm going to sell it. I'm afraid of loss and I'm going to pull it. And that can kind of build on itself because the people that are buying it don't understand the underlying fundamentals of what things are as far as just buying and holding in like long term. So let's kind of get into what's causing all of this, right? The the big bad uh, virus pandemic that's happening right now in the market. Um, that's causing all of this instability, all of this volatility. And Biden had put a plan in to get 100 million vaccines distributed and into uh, Americans within his first 100 days, right? Mm -hmm. He wants to curve this. So let's say he does, right? Let's say he actually can put out the vaccines, which what I found stunning is that New York has thrown away an insane amount of vaccines because it comes frozen, the vaccine. And once it defrosts, you got to use it. Yeah. It, it. Like, it's like milk. You know what I mean? Like, you can't just have it yeah, outside there, there was and, one of them it between, won't spoil. Was it Pfizer and Moderna? One of the two came at like a sub, like 100, yeah, 100 yeah. degrees Fahrenheit mm -hmm. down. The other one could sustain being at 30, 40, 50 degrees for a short period of time. But, but yeah, that's the, the point, for a short period of time. Yeah, so the distribution because of, of that, them. They, what what blows my mind is we've been hoping for a vaccine since this whole thing started. How did these states, how did these governments not have a plan in place for the proper distribution of the vaccines? They're getting all these vaccines and it's like they're deer stuck, you know, in what did I say? Deer in headlights? Because yeah, headlights they're work. shocked. They're stunned. They don't know what the hell. They're like, well, maybe, maybe we should do it to this neighborhood. And there's no plan. There's no organization. Well, there's nothing. And then they get wasted and thrown out. Well, and part of the issue was is the way that there's an article that I had on here for last week. It's at the very top that U.S. to change vaccine allocation to favor states that quickly administer shots. And one of their things was is like when they first came out with the vaccines, they said it's only people of certain groups that could get it, frontline workers, nursing homes, and things like right. that, where they didn't have the distribution to those set up to where, hey, we need to get these people in here. Well, health frontline workers, healthcare workers, they're dealing with the pandemic on the front line. They can't just take away to get over there to get these shots. Well, and it's nursing homes. Well, a lot of these elderly people can't just get in a car and drive over here to get this thing done. They need transportation, they need help. So we're rolling out to these people is slow to where that's why a lot of these things were going bad. It's like, we just can't get it to the people you're saying we need to get it to, to where now they're changing the guidelines and saying, hey, it's to everyone 65 and older instead yeah. of nursing homes and or the, the most vulnerable because they realized exactly to that point is vaccines are being wasted. We can't let these things go wasted. We're at this point, like we need, if they're being wasted, we need to change the way these are being administered. And that's what they're getting, uh, I think, gearing up toward before yeah well it, there's a article that i was reading too for san antonio that had 5.6 million calls jam phone lines for well-med covid vaccine registration in san antonio so san antonio has um has received more vaccines and everything like this so they're opening up they said 4700 vaccines were administered within three days uh, in a community center, and a total of 9,000 doses were available at the two facilities, but all of the shots have been filled, according to well-met officials. So you have a lot of people lining up and blowing up the phones to get it done. They gave on here the hours that they're going to be giving them, 
And it says, where was it? So San Antonio City officials said in a press conference, blah, 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 week that registration for the non, that no cost COVID vaccine registration filled up in just six minutes. Hmm. And that more than 11,000 people were on registration websites when it opened. And Alamo location, Alamo Dome location is able to provide up to 1,500 vaccines per day. And San Antonio has four mass vaccination sites that can administer nearly 30,000 vaccinations a week, including the Alamo Dome. So you have all of this that, you know, a lot of major cities are going in, but we go back to the same thing. It's the same like when they first shut down the economy and they said, well, we got to shut it down because we can't afford, we can't have the high um, hospitalizations, right, that we were having. We can't manage all that. So it's like, all right. I understand, like hospitals need to be ready. Then they open up and it's the same standards of hospitalizations. And what I mean is like in San Antonio, it was 15%. If, yeah. you, if we exceed the 15%, then they got to shut down, you know, bars uh, get shut down again, restaurants go down 50%. To me, I would have thought you've had all these months, that 15%, it could still be 15%, but it should be a lot more patients now because you should have modified hospitals, set up wings, done something for the second wave. Yeah. I mean, from, from the, day it. one, they've been talking about a second wave, right? From day one. Yet now they open up and everybody's stunned at the second wave. And I'm like, how are you not prepared? Yeah. You've been talking about the second wave since the first one hit. You understand? We've been preparing. We've been talking about a vaccine since this first. Oh, or, yeah, just where's, that. Like, where's as temperatures the... got colder and people moved inside, being another big wave of things. And like, why weren't you ready for that? How it, did you not expect? It wasn't that? a surprise. We all knew. Yeah. We all spoke about it. Like, my thing is, and, and don't get me wrong. I'm speaking from complete ignorance of not knowing, you know, the ins and out of the government and all of that. But to me, it's like, I'm sorry, you don't have smart people on there that can start predicting and start planning for, all right, what are we going to do when we distribute, when these vaccines are available? Well, Why don't yeah, we set up a plan for distribution? Why don't what, we set up a list of people that are going to get it? You know, like, so then when they're saying, Hey, we're distributing vaccines. All right. We only need 40,000. Cause that's what we have set up. Yeah. No. Yeah. Send me a hundred thousand. Well, that was the, the thing about it is like, it was like the, the, this whole thing has been like perfect storm with an election year. So you had an administration of changing over right in the middle of vaccines becoming available. Like, so now you have one side having one opinion, the other side having another opinion, they're at a stalemate because a lot of this stuff is being run by the government. So that that is crazy because like another thing of that article I put that is, this article was written in January 12th and a quote from it was, as of Monday morning, more than 25.4 million doses have been distributed across the United States, but just over 8.9 million shots had been administered. 16.5 million shots are just sitting in storage, not being used. Because they're just like, oh, we don't know how to administer them. We don't know how to have an effective plan to get them rolled out. Because I think it was just that. It's like you had a massive administrative change from the last three months of the year, right when these things are starting to get rolled out. And you had all the political fighting and everything going back and forth that just caused a perfect storm of like, nobody was thinking about it. Because they're like, well, who's in control? Who's not in control? Is this kind of going to take over? What's their thoughts? Well, they think different. So do I start moving here? Do I start moving there? So. Yeah. And it was well, two stark differences of two administrations that just changed hands. So I think that was one reason why these plans weren't put in place. Um, and one of the things Biden's talking about is like the funding's not there for it. 
Oh, so, shit, the funding's not there. Come on. They have the freaking control print button at their disposal. Well, it's not. They they're want. saying it's there, but it's not passed legislatively to get no, it to where it needs to be. No, it's bad administration of money because they have from these stimulus, even from past stimulus plans, how much money is still available to distribute to certain programs, but they didn't need that much. So it's just sitting in reserves. But yeah, you can't just take it from here and put it over there without approval from Congress. But move faster. I mean, to me, it's like, where's the priority? It's It's been so much politics, so much nonsense. It's like money is not being put where it needs to be put yeah. because of all this nonsense. Are we are we serious here? Like, it, yeah, it just that's, blows that's, my mind. That's politics and then, for you in government. And now, so where am I leading with all this? Where am I going, right? My thing is, like, like we said before, this is a uh, business podcast. This is a podcast about... You know, what do you do with your real estate investing? What do you do with your investments and all of that? So COVID, the vaccine, opening up, people feeling comfortable affects all of this. And one of the articles I had on here last week that I was going to cover was uh, Moderna CEO says the world will have to live with COVID forever, right? So they're saying, look, COVID is not going away. This is not something that we're going to create a vaccine and it's over. That's it. We killed it you know, COVID is gone. He's like, it's not going to happen. It's it's going to be here. It's going to stay here. And it's something that we got to learn to live with. So you have bad distribution of vaccines. Biden wants to distribute 100 million vaccines in his first 100 days. I don't even know if there's plans in place to be able to effectively distribute the 100 million. And we have home sellers are not wanting to sell their homes because they're scared of having people in their homes. They're scared of going out. They're scared of doing all these things. So a lot of homeowners are not putting their houses on the market because it's the, all the uncertainty with COVID. So this affects all of these areas, businesses, and we're going to cover some of the businesses that are making some uh, interesting choices. What are we going to do if we get another pandemic that's worse or another strain of COVID. They're talking about a strain that's a mutation of the strain in Africa, which is highly more contagious than this strain. If it's highly more contagious, death rates are going to go up. You understand? Because more people are going to get it easier, more people are gonna, could die from it. So death rates are going to go up. Do we shut down again then at that point? Because hospitals still haven't prepared. They're still not adjusting. What happens? Well, I mean, are we I'm in a constant just... Open for two months, close for five, open for a month, close for six. Like, is that just life as we move forward? Who knows? Uh, I, uh, who knows? Well, I mean, the one thing that we do know is the least out of the way is the quote unquote politics of it and trying to damage the other side. Because now the party of power has four years to where if they keep the agenda going, they have to own the economic repercussions that come out of it. Versus last year when it was an election year, they were trying to pit the pandemic against each other. To where it's like, hey, at least now we're past that. That was one thing I was happy for. With It's like, let's just get past this election. Let's get past all this stuff. Let's move on with life and let's figure out where we're going, what's going to happen. So what's going to happen with it? Who knows? And it's like, and because you can't just build a hospital overnight. Right. Like They take a very long time to build and to ramp up capacity. And like COVID's not the only thing out there that's killing people. Like you still have heart. You still have all the other things beforehand. So how do you run these things? Cause also one thing I've read is uh, I've heard is hospitals are losing money in funding because they're not able to have the elective surgeries and the amount of people coming in that they have been able to make money off of because this COVID thing is being funded by the government and money's not there. But I thought 
uh, hospitals were being subsidized by the government. If you say somebody has COVID, they just write you, give me more money. That's hearsay. I've never really read it or have confirmed no, on that. Know. So that's yeah. why I know there was a lot of subsidizing by the government for some of these things. Right. But no, how just, is that money being properly administered or is like, it getting to where it needs to be get or got to? Yeah. Getting to. Gotten to. Gitson. Um, <laughs> that, that's my point. And those are the things that when you're looking at trends and, and seeing what's coming down the line, those are the things that you got to pay attention to. It's what does all of this mean? How is this all going to affect, you know, the, the coming economy? How is this going to affect housing? Because you're looking at all this, you're seeing why inventory is so low is because people aren't selling their homes because of fear of COVID and, and doesn't seem like COVID is going away anytime soon. And then they're talking about these strains that are mutating are highly more um, infectious. So it's like, what does this mean? If COVID, if there's a mutation of the strain that just gets substantially worse, God forbid, like, but do we just all barrel down in our homes and just call it a year? I mean, like, who knows? I mean, that's just one of the things like anybody can speculate on it, but nobody knows until no, it no, happens sure, there. So I mean, th those are the things that are coming down. So here's another article of businesses and how they're dealing with it. So you have a UK cruise liner will require all passengers to fully vaccinate against COVID-19. So you have this because a lot of um, positive cases have come from cruise liners, right? I, I believe uh, they said like over 700 or something like that came from one like Princess Cruise Line or I don't know, some crap like that. Um, it's a lot. It's a lot. So you have this cruise liners that saying everybody needs to be vaccinated at least 14 days prior to um, take jumping on the cruise. But here's what I find interesting is. Da -da -da -da. Uh, so they're going to be restarting their cruise date, uh, to May to allow time for people to receive the vaccines at least 14 days prior to travel. But here's, what's interesting is that they're going to be tested before getting on and they're going to reduce the capacity of customers on board, enhance cleaning regimens and double its medical staff amongst other precautions. So my question is. Who's paying for all this? Because you are lowering the amount of people that are going to be on the cruise. You are increasing the amount of cleaning that you're enhancing your cleaning, right? Which I'm sure that's going to account for more cleaning crew, maybe equipment that's expensive, maybe, you know, well, increasing costs, increasing costs and lowering. But capacity. And then you're doubling your medical staff, you know, to provide more medical staff and everything like this are cruise line prices going to go through the roof for you to take a cruise or oh they'd what, have what, well they would have to you know, it's know one of the things that, to, because like you they? look at that and it, if they want to open up they want to function and then it's just it's a new business model and hope that it's there yeah. but it's going to be come down to the i mean you're adding a further i don't want to say income gap but it's like on if ticket prices go up your middle lower class can't afford to go on a cruise so now you're making it to where it's it's you're the wealthy that go. So you now you're even creating a further divide between rich and not rich because of these situations. So, and these kind of policies that they're having to come up with to make it safer, right. to make people feel more comfortable. So my, my question is more along the lines of, okay, so cruise liners are doing this so they can, so they're able to start operating again. I mean, they've been pretty much shut down and a cruise is, you know, talk about, having nowhere to go and <laughs> being surrounded by a shit ton of people. Yeah. So 
it, it's it's a very scary situation to be in, right? Especially with uh, in the UK, you're probably getting people traveling from all over the place, and you have that strain that's coming from Africa. So it's probably hitting Europe. It's going to hit Europe first, obviously, because Spain. You yeah. get a lot of people from Africa going into Spain and Europe. So what my my point is. All right, cruise liners are trying to adapt this way. Are we going to start seeing resorts uh, uh, adjust to this? Arenas, if they want to open airlines. up airlines. Like, yeah, you're stuck in a, a tin can. Now, like we said, if you want to go anywhere, if you want to do anything, you're going to need to be vaccinated. Yeah. If not, buy a yacht, buy a plane, right? Like, like Get uh, rich and go to buy an island. I don't know. Buy, uh, you know, watch sports at home. Um, it, that's That's my curiosity. Like... As a business owner, would you, if you had a company of 100, 200 people, would you require vaccinations? And like, what kind of precautions do you put? Because I get, you know, we, we all have our thoughts on COVID and everything, whatever it may be, but the facts are still the facts. It is contagious, you know, to some people, to a percentage of the population, it's deadly. Um, what do you do to adjust as a company? How do you stay in business? Like, I think it's a very difficult situation. Oh, it, it's extremely difficult because you look at, I mean, especially like a cruise line or somebody that re, their business requires I mean, movie theaters, anything that requires density of people yeah. where like if people are scared to get on your cruise line, you're going to go out of business. So you're going to do whatever you can to stay in business by requiring people to get vaccinated, requiring employees to get vaccinated, that they're going to do it to try to survive. Yeah. It depends on your company. depends on your, where you're located because like you look at left versus right, there's very stark differences between vaccinations and are they going to get one? Is it real? Is it not? So where it's going to be very interesting to see how we adapt to this as like, I mean, the first hundred days, like, where do these 100 million vaccinations go out? Or even if we come closer, if we exceed this next six to 12 months, what is going to happen and what direction is it going to go? There's so many variables. And that's why it's like trying to project where you're going to be in 12 months is hard to do because you have this big question mark of what's going to happen. Right. You just don't know. So you play it almost day by day, week by week of where things well, are going. You have this other company. So this article, Dollar General will pay workers to get COVID-19 vaccines. So their whole thing is, you know, we don't feel that our workers need to choose between getting vaccinated and working. So they're pretty much going to be paying their workers, you know, it, go get the vaccine, go get all that stuff done, and you're still going to be getting paid during that time, however long yeah. that takes. So, I mean, I, I think, again, I think it's getting more and more difficult where a lot of companies that may not want to do that or may not want to put such a hard stipulation to, you know, your to this COVID vaccine and everything like that, they might start resulting to more working from home, you know, adjusting mm -hmm. to more of that work from home uh, mindset and everything, which goes back to real estate. Yeah, you need, right back to where we were at the very yeah. beginning. And it goes back to real estate where it's like people are still going to need bigger homes. Uh, I was hearing um, uh, who was, oh, that Kathy lady uh, that has a podcast. Kathy Fetke. At her. Uh, and she was talking about how big cities are thinking that they're being vacated very quickly. Um, they're thinking that the people that are going to be moving back is going to be the youth. 
younger people because they want that city life, right? The, the big city is good for people that like that city life, more of a vibrant, you know. Choices. Uh, yeah. It's where like, I don't like, go to home. I'm home all night, go to work. I'm work all day, home at night, work. They want options right. and places to go out to bars, restaurants, entertainment, venues, uh, music. They want all that stuff to actually so go out for entertainment purposes. They're saying the younger people are the ones that are going to be more likely to move back into the cities and that the families that moved out into suburbia, they're not because you know, they moved out, they got maybe better school district, a bigger home, have a yard, they're settling in and they have a family. They're like, ah, we're not going to go back to the cities. So it's going to change the whole climate of real estate. It's going to change a lot of these things as we see moving forward, which is why we love rentals. Because when you have such low inventory and people can't, we can't buy, or the houses look like dog shit that are available, the only thing they have left is to rent. You know what I mean? You're an investor. You renovated your home. You have a beautiful home. Well, I mean, that's just part of, uh, I know the new administration's plan is to incentivize multifamily. Um, there's, I don't, I don't remember what article it was that it was in, um, but they talked about uh, the, the difficulty of it's going to be is because they want to improve density. They want to encourage density. They want to encourage uh, getting rid of all these old zoning laws that make it hamstring for density like we ran into downtown mm -hmm. uh, to where like they're pushing for density and you have two problems with that it's like well, one the COVID aspect of it of like density allows things to transmit quicker so are they able to eradicate this uh this disease i don't know i'm not an epidemiologist so i can't where i saw Lori hernandez put in here of like they can get rid of small packs and polio but not COVID. i don't know are Fair they right. able to get rid of it maybe maybe not there's no telling yeah. um and the other aspect of it is by doing density and by increasing some of these zoning laws, it's not appealing to the far left because those aren't green initiatives in, for increasing density and increasing housing and getting rid of some of these zoning laws. So it's going to be very interesting where the administration goes as far as housing initiatives go because they can do all these things to incentivize buyers and people to move into these places. But if the housing stock isn't there and builders can't build because of the lumber material prices of land and everything we've talked about, yeah. where are they going to go? So it's well, going to be interesting what happens in the next couple of years. Oh, it sure is. And I wanted to touch on, uh, you know, as we hit 930 close, uh, I wanted to talk about San Antonio real estate. So we have San Antonio gets 46.7 million from federal government for rental assistance. So attention landlords, this is for you guys. So we have, they're getting $46 million for rental assistance. Travis County, here's what's crazy. Um, that wasn't actually the article I was going to lead to. it. They got kind of swapped. But it appears that this could extend the life of city's popular emergency housing assistance program for several months. And by several months, uh, further in the article, they just referred to about two months. That, that's how much assistance they can provide to uh, tenants and homeowners that are needing, that are, keep seeking the, this assistance. So they've already awarded 68 million to more than 26,000 San Antonio homes since the pandemic began. Um, you have at least 90% of the income federal dollars must be used for direct financial assistance, which includes rent, rental arrears, utilities, and home energy costs. So the city is making that requirement, 90% of it, which I think is great. It's what we mm. talk a lot about when they do, you know, these uh, big corporate tax cuts and all these benefits and everything. 
there needs to be stipulations where it's like, hey, all this benefit needs to be used for the purpose of making things better, not for you to go and buy more Bitcoin or Tesla stock through Robinhood, right? Like <laughs> you need to be uh, using this money because if not, like 26,000 San Antonio homes, I'm sure there's a lot more homes that need help. You understand? So if you're taking that money and you're not being held liable to use it for what you truly need, that's, you know, you're hurting other people. You're hurting people that actually need it. So they say that income in dollars cost the city council to change up some of its funding plans for the program. The council had been set to allocate $13.1 million to that, to that assistant program on Wednesday, but it lowered the amount to $10 million. So from 13 to $10 million, sending $3 million to assist with building or rehabilitating affordable housing instead. So I'm curious as to what that means. You know, three million to assist in building or rehabilitating affordable housing. Is this part of um, the opportunity zones? Like, where's that money really going to? What does that mean? Affordable housing? Like, is there a price point that we're targeting? Rehabilitating? What does that mean? Are homeowners getting that money? Are investors getting that money to do it? Like, well, you get tax incentives and tax breaks and things like that to rehabilitate low-income housing and stuff like that because i know there's several apartment complexes downtown that are um they're new they were built in the last 10 years but you because of the breaks they got in order to do the development a certain percentage of the homes needed to be reserved for lower income families so that might be when they say they're giving three million dollars it's like hey we're taking three million dollars and we're passing it on to these these development projects and giving the tax incentives that way. So they're yeah. keeping it, but giving the incentive another way. So not really giving it to somebody to say, hey, now go build this. It's saying, hey, we're going to subsidize these tax revenues losses with this extra 3 million bucks or whatever it may be. Well, and then uh, on here, we have your your uncle um, Trevino, Robert Trevino. Oh boy. <laughs> he says, until we're out of this pandemic and its effects, I fear that any amount that we extend will not be enough for the EHA, the home assistant program. So, you know, he wants more money for the the tenants. Well, we know his political agenda, but is this enough? You know what I mean? Like when we talk about real estate and investing and everything and attention landlords again, this is what we talk about opportunities that are coming down the line is that there are landlords, landlords out there that are burned out. They are facing tenants that are not paying their mortgage. They're, they're not paying their rent. They're, that's a high distress situation. Because right now, that's the biggest issue a lot of investors are having is, who do you market to? I mean, there are still people marketing the foreclosures. I'm like, what foreclosures are you looking to pick up? First of all, in January, there wasn't any foreclosures, right? They didn't allow homes to be foreclosed on. And now you have all of these, you know, the extension of the eviction moratoriums and everything till September. You have all these programs in place to stop that from happening. Why are you doing that? Yeah. The homeowners have no motivation to sell at all. They're protected almost in every which way. But landlords, on the other hand, especially, huh. you know, landlords are not taking the time to maybe educate their tenants. Well, it's one of the things the landlords need to know these laws more than the tenants 100%. do, because I mean, it's the end of the day, it's your pocketbook that's getting affected. Yeah. You can evict them whenever you 
now apparently through sub March and now trying to push through September that you can evict them and start doing, getting a new tenant paying at that point. Right. But what happens between now and then, and there's no saying they won't just extend it again. So you need to be educated and educating your tenants, putting a pack together, helping them walk through that because that money goes from landlord to tenant straight to you, straight to your bank and into your pocketbook to sustain the housing. So that's something that if you're a landlord in that situation, you need to be educated and pushing your tenants and helping them get through that because you're helping them helping you kind of situation. Yeah. Help me help you help me help you. And then we have the the next article, the one that I was going to read first, was Bayer County's 11% increase in home sales in 2020 surpassed other major Texas counties. So you have a very interesting little article here where Travis County saw a 3.2% increase. Harris County saw a 6.7% increase, and Dallas saw 4%. But San Antonio saw in uh, Bayer County saw an eleven percent increase. That's nuts. I mean, that is a huge growth. And like we talked about before, and the point that you made, uh, we made at the beginning. You know, the top ten zip codes are under two months of inventory and over two hundred grand with their values in San Antonio. Which you know, if you haven't already, make sure you go to sarealestatemarket.com to get the market updates, slides, zip codes, all of that. You can get it there. You can download it right now. Um, But San Antonio is just hot. Like it is a hot, hot market. Well, we talk to several people here in San Antonio and they text us all the time. And one of the people we talk with, uh, how experiencing of what Austin's having, where it's like prices, even if houses don't appraise, people are paying 40 grand more than what, houses appraised for and that's in the initial contract that they're willing to do that that house goes on the market and then it's like 17 offers and half of them over asking price to where like mm-hmm. your entry-level person can't afford that they can't compete with that but in san antonio we still have a lot of inventory we still have a lot of housing that can be rehabilitated on our south side and west side that can be rehabilitated and turned into quality housing stock so that can be there but prices need to rise to make it affordable or profitable for an investor to do that so is that coming to san antonio i don't think it's going to get as bad because san antonio has a little more of a process to build housing and it's not as encumbersome from the city because i've talked to developers in austin they're like Dude, developing in Austin's a nightmare. Like they blame us for making prices rise. So the city is very unfriendly to developers and builders when it comes to permits and regulations, letting things go. So San Antonio can bring more housing on the market. And we have a housing stock that is much older that can be renovated. So I don't think it's going to get as bad here, but I mean, it is extremely tight and of the houses that do qualify. So it takes time for housing to appreciate to a level that somebody can afford to buy it, renovate it and put it on the housing market and to turn a profit to make it worth their time to do that. But it has to slowly spread down that way because you have to have that velocity of housing to make those prices go up. So if inventory doesn't rise, it it causes problems as well as far as- Well, I think this this is what, and what you and I have been speaking about is other opportunities in San Antonio and other markets. When they're this high, you got to start looking at where's affordability in your market. Right. So here in San Antonio, we're seeing affordability is still like on the west side, on the west side of uh, downtown. Those areas, those houses, you know, barely moving all that much as far as home values go. So that might be that next market that gets hit 
for rising home prices, just like the new the annuity got hit, you know, seven, eight years ago, and then Denver Heights, and then all the east side of downtown, they got hit. There were homes that they were selling for fifty grand. And now those houses are selling for two fifty. You know, yeah, and if they three hundred, it's crazy. And if they need a lot of work, they're selling them for one seventy. You know what I'm saying? So it's it, you're you're starting to see that because people keep going to affordability. And we had, we did have a comment from uh, Tehran. Uh, sorry if I messed up your name. Isn't that how the first bubble started? So the first bubble started more because of the terrible loans that they were giving, which for right now it seems like they're not doing that so much of the terrible loans. They're they're still making sure that you know at least you have good credit, your job matters, all of these things. I don't know. I don't know. Well, that's just something that were I, I saw part of one of those previous articles I talked about. One of the things they want to do to raise or make it more affordable for people to get into the housing is they want to lower the FHA insurance premiums mm. to make it a little cheaper for people to get in because the programming has been so successful and has turned a profit and is doing what it was intended to do better than what they intended. They're thinking the administrator might look, administration might look at that and say, hey, we can afford to cut premiums now because we have all this extra money and it has been so successful. So as they start rolling those things back, if these new loan products start coming out to where it's like, hey, we the drive-by appraisals that we talked about or the way they verify income now start changing, that can start causing problems later on down the road for the lending against real estate. And it all really hinges on the person's ability to pay. Yeah. So that is the portion that- So as we get close to wrapping up, um, <clears throat> Lori says that's exactly what happened in California. Austin is a mini California now. <laughs> it sure is. Um, what are some strategies? Like, what, let's look at, you know, it, you're a real estate investor. What are you doing right now? You're, let, let's kind of go over. If you're a wholesaler, how are you adapting to this market shift? How are you adapting to it? You're a wholesaler. I mean, if you're a wholesaler, it's the same thing that we've always talked about. I, I would keep doing is like understanding where the market is and understanding why you're making money. Right. You need to be educated. It's not just, I get a low price. I blast it to a list and I get a higher price and I make that spread. It's like, who is your buyer pool and why are they buying? Cause we constantly see people saying, Oh, I'm updating my buyers list. All these buyers are greedy and they suck. It's like, no, your deals suck. And that's why you're wanting to find more ignorant and less educated people to buy these properties and sell them to. Yeah. Like that's not how you invest in real estate or in cause wholesaling isn't investing. You're just moving paper. You need to understand that to where that would be the biggest thing I was focusing focus on as a wholesaler is like, who am I selling these to and why are they buying to where you need to be able to adapt in a shift? Cause those people that you're trying to find that are just less educated than the rest of your buyer pool. Like those people are being the first ones to go away when properties don't start working out. Cause I mean, we've had wholesaler bring us a retail deal. By the time you got done renovating anything, you were paying more than what it was worth on the open market. It's like, that's not a wholesale deal like at all. Like it's not a deal. And buy it off the MLS for cheaper price than that. Well, so that kind of leads to what we went back to earlier about um, hoteling and stuff. I believe if you're a wholesaler, you need to get your real estate license. You, you really do. Real, having your real estate license just opens up your stream of income tremendously. And you have so many more ways to monetize because you're doing marketing. You're yeah. generating leads. You get a house like this wholesaler brought to us. 
And we looked at it, it's like, yeah, it's below market value, but not by much. You understand? And like you said, even even just buying it as is and like keeping it as is, you were already well over the 80% uh, equity that you needed to be just so for it to cash flow or to do anything oh, worth yeah. a damn. So it's like, why don't you list it? Oh, because I don't have my license. Get your license. That was a $250,000 home, I think it was. It's yeah. a hell of a commission. $7,500 commission and, right there. In this market, and please, realtors, uh, real estate agents, if you're listening, don't take offense. You don't need to be that good. You just need to have a license to be able to put the house on the market. Because of the That's massive all, buyer demand. Exactly. And there's the lack of so, inventory. There's so much buyer demand that... As all you need to do is let them know that the house is for sale, pretty much. Yeah. And that's what the MLS does. Let's people know that the houses are for sale. It's a huge avenue that I think people are, and a lot of wholesalers are hurting on. And then if we look at regulations and everything, we've seen it in some states where they're trying to regulate wholesaling. They want wholesalers to be licensed. They want people, you know, in, in the Board of Realtor, you believe that you got to believe they're pushing that, right? Oh, yeah. They want people to oh, be Oh, yeah, licensed. for sure. Because the, the brokers get commissions and brokers pay the board board fees. So. You have board fees, more agents and all that. So, and then the same thing, I, I met um, an investor lady uh, last week, I would say, at her at an investment property. And we were just talking about, she was asking, you know, what can she do with this new home she picked up and everything. She was running comps using Redfin. And my thing is like in Texas, right? You know, a non-disclosure state and all of this, like you got to be careful because those platforms, they don't have all the data that you need. So she puts her house on the market and she's not understanding why it's not selling. And I was like, well, you need to have access to the MLS. Yeah. Or you I mean, know, especially like, you just have an agent, like ask somebody to run comps for you, help yeah. them out or like build into like your pricing of having an agent list the property for you. Yeah. Or however it is, because I mean, I think they were using like a low fee broker that doesn't really do anything but put on the MLS for you. Flat you have free, to do it. Flat fee, flat fee broker yeah. that all you do is they just put on the MLS for you. But you have to do everything beyond that. You price but, it. You show it. Back, you know, because then she says, I told her the same thing. I was like, get an agent, somebody that you can work with or like that. And she says, well, I have some friends that are agents. And I was like, but you also got to make sure that they're not just an agent, but they're also kind of like an investor. Because they got to be able to run the, when you're running comps, you're not running to just say, okay, what's the highest value in this neighborhood? It's this. All right. So that's what I'm going to target. No, you need to look at it from an investor's point of view yeah. of saying, all right, what do I need to do to this house to get it to that value? You understand what kind of updates do I need to do? And then if I don't want to do those level of updates, then what's the next price point that I can target, right? Or if I target that price point, what can I do to my house to make it stand out from those houses? That's not going to cost me too much. So all of this stuff comes from an investor's mentality, not from a realtor's mentality. And this is not a knock on realtors at all. It's just that, you know, realtors list properties and all of that. But they don't they don't think about, you know, areas of investing and stuff like that. Only an investor knows how to do these tricks and stuff to get the most money. Yeah. So having a license, I mean, it's just right now. I mean, even I if you're even is, if you're a flipper, too, uh, oh, I think having some, your own properties. Everything, yeah, like yeah. The, like every time we list a property, I save us three yeah. percent on a three hundred thousand dollar house. It's nine grand that we get a drop to our bottom line by being being able to list it. Yep. So like if, if you're not the one, you need to have somebody on your team that lists at a less of a fee because you're giving them so much business where like you have to have that person that's willing to list, especially today with prices going the way they are, yeah. like you got to start 
cutting fees and be able to try to make more money well, uh, you, from somewhere else. And then you also have, like I said, other streams of income. You have, you know, referrals. How, how many people do we have reaching out to us are coming from out of state that want to pick up rentals and stuff like that? We don't represent buyers because pain in the ass, but we have agents that do. So we refer them out to those agents. They close on something. They give us a kickback for that. Yeah. You understand? That's just kind of, what do they call it? Mailbox money or whatever. That's just low extra scratch that keeps coming in. You know what I mean? So you get a little revenue here, a little revenue there. So I think if you're a wholesaler or a flipper, like you're saying, you need to be able to increase your streams of income and having a license or having somebody on your team with a license is so crucial to that effect. You know what I mean? And then, I mean, I've been kind of thinking about this, but I haven't spent too much time, but you have the rich dad cash flow quadrant. Right. So you have the E, the S, the B, and the I. And I mm -hmm. was thinking about it and I was like, you know, in real estate, we kind of have that too. We have wholesaling and flipping on the left side of the quadrant and then buying, hold, and maybe notes and stuff like that Being on the, on the right bottom. side. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? Because it's like wholesaling and flipping, I'm sorry, is not investing. You're speculating on all of those things. You're, you're even hoteling and all that. You're speculating. You're, you're trying to make that quick cash, that quick return. And it's all based on speculation. It's not based on actual investing, you know, but investing is when you're putting real capital, you're holding, you're being strategic, you're planning out over the course of a year or two, what your cash flow is, what your expenses are, what, you know, your appreciation might be, where's other avenues that you can increase profit. Like, I feel it requires more of a, you know, an investor mentality to do that versus speculate on, you know, I can buy it for this low. Hopefully I keep my repairs lower and I can sell it and make this profit, rinse and repeat. Yeah. So I mean, I look on a scale of like what it takes to be an investor. Wholesaling isn't one at all. Like on a scale of one to 10, I guess you could put like you got wholesaling on closer to zero. You got flipping because it does take some knowledge. You are taking something undervalued, putting money and in, capital into it, reinvesting it and turning a profit. So you are mm -hmm. in a quote investing in something. But then when it comes to buy and hold and lending, it's like, that is a completely different financial asset and mentality that you need uh, to have than if yeah. you're just flipping or definitely more. So I agree. And then, and then also flipping, I think uh, going back to the model that we talked about last week, check out last week's episode. Cause we definitely talked, we cover a lot of these points in more detail, but the two year flip, if you're a flipper and you have access to funds or you can refinance or something like that, you can you should start doing a two-year flip where or one year flip, whatever makes sense, where you're buying a property and maybe you can flip it now and make uh in San Antonio numbers, I don't know other cities, but let's say in San Antonio, maybe you can make 20, 25 grand. Well, if you can still cash flow out of that property, hold on to it. Because huh. the remember, we have very low inventory. So prices until that inventory, until that demand and supply kind of, you know, balance out, not completely balance out, but until we start going above, uh, two, uh, two months of inventory or three months of inventory that we start hitting those numbers, like we're going to keep getting appreciation. You understand? So you're letting go of a property that right now maybe is making you 20, but in a year from now can make you 40, 45, you know, maybe more depending on where you are, depending on how crazy the market got, you understand? Like, it's a much smarter investment. And then you have long-term capital gains tax at that point, which might be lower. Who knows? Um, <laughs> we don't know how they're going to do with capital gains tax. But I think it makes for a much profitable, much more 
much less riskier investment for yourself and for your business. So there's some tips. Um, hope you guys, uh, you know, like everything, we're here to try to provide you value, our perspective, our ideas, what we're seeing in the market, what we're seeing happening, the, the even the pivots that we're making. And, you know, if you haven't already hit, hit the bell below uh, next to the subscribe button, because we are going to be dropping a lot of videos that we've been recording in depth on very basic fundamentals of real estate. Like the we're calling it the what is real estate series. And if we're going to cover every term out there, how you use everything, you know, option money, escrow, you know, every contract assignment, your entry and, level, your starting point, where yeah, you got to be, wherever it is. And a lot of people need it because they have a lot of misconceptions on a lot of these terms. And we're also dropping some, uh, you know, videos very quickly on tactics and things that we're implementing right now, because like I said at the beginning, things are changing so fast. Things are moving so quickly. One of the things that's crazy about real estate, I always say, is like, it's a fast industry, but it's also very slow too. Like, it, you look at appreciation your way, like we always say that if you want to get there faster, you need to move slower in real estate because everyone wants that quick money. But it's yeah. also one of the things like, you got to slow down and understand what the industry really is before you start making that money because you'll get in the ha bad habits up front that are going to damage your long-term reputation and potential because you got too eager and moved too quick. Oh, and, li and like we say, you know, real estate isn't going anywhere. People still need a roof over their head. They still need somewhere to live. It's not going anywhere. Don't worry. You know, you got time. Don't rush to get into it. Be smart. Be patient, you know, but be educated. Understand yep. what it is that you're doing. And if you don't know, find somebody that does. Partner with them. Work with them. Uh, pick, pick on them. You know, pick their brains. Give them some form of value for them to teach you. We're always doing that. We're always looking for people that we can sit down with, talk. We're bringing them. We were looking at a project that's way out of our wheelhouse. And we brought somebody that we know could handle something like that. And we're like, hey, here's a deal. We're looking at it. We want to do this. We can help with funding, managing. We just, we're not sure what to do here. Do you yeah. want a partner? You understand? We're fine giving profits away because we want the lessons so we can keep doing it ourselves. Yep. Right? So be willing to do that, that investment in yourself, in your business by giving that kind of value away. So hope you guys are enjoying this. There's a lot more coming down the line. Make sure you subscribe and hit that bell. And if for whatever reason we do get censored and shut down, we will continue this on our website and investorsjourney.com. So make sure you're subscribed to our newsletter because in the case this happens, we won't stop. So <laughs> just a little plug out there. So hope you guys are enjoying it. Uh, again, if you found any value, give us a thumbs up. Matters a lot. It helps us out tremendously. Uh, to reach more people. So please uh, give us that little thumbs up and thank you for watching and we will catch you all in the next episode. Bye-bye.